0: Welcome to Pineland Underground, the official podcast of the United States Army's John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School, and the best podcast the military has to offer.
1: Real, bold, and unrestricted. We're your hosts, Sergeant Major Chuck Ritter, Major Bobby Tuttle. Welcome to Pineland Underground.
0: Welcome back to the best official podcast in the military. The SOCOM Softcast podcast is a close second. It's an awesome podcast, but I would still rate it number two of three special operations podcasts that I seniorate if I were to seniorate podcasts. But anyway, today's topic is one that's been slightly contentious in special operations. Today we're going to deep dive the Security Force Assistance Brigades, better known as SFABs. We have an SFAB subject matter expert with us today, Colonel Mike Sullivan. He recently served as the commander for the 2nd Security Force Assistance Brigade and is the current Special Warfare Center and School's Chief of Staff. So Colonel Sullivan started his career as a field artillery officer. He made it through Special Forces assessment and selection, and then served in the 3rd Special Forces Group. He had the honor and privilege of serving as my battalion commander 3rd Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group once upon a time, and has extensive experience through deployments in the Pacific, 1st Special Forces Command, Special Operations Command Lebanon, and countless deployments to combat theaters. Colonel Sullivan also has a Bronze Star for valor and is someone I personally have a ton of respect for. But unfortunately, he does not possess the coveted air assault badge. So he automatically accrues two officer points right off the bat for this episode. Sure. Colonel Sullivan, <laughs> welcome to the episode. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to the Underground. No, I appreciate it.
2: And yes, it is true. When, you know, back in the day you took the 3 3 guide on, you also signed for one Chuck Ritter and the fact that he was most likely going to turn left into some bullets at some time during your tenure. Yeah, so yeah. I, I appreciate you noting
1: that. Do you think we'll be able to ask General Beaupere to send Colonel Sullivan to Jumpmaster while he's here at Swick?
2: I've been to Jumpmaster School. He just doesn't wear it. I okay. just don't have the requisite number of jumps <laughs> because it took a waiver for me to get to Jumpmaster School because I didn't come from an airborne unit prior as a field artilleryman. And, you know, I was too busy fighting a war to be worried about jumps and badges, Bobby. At least that's what I used to say to one of the generals (laughs) I used to work for when he asked why my wings were bald. He's got
0: negative two officer points. He's back to zero.
2: Appreciate that. So personal attacks on Bobby will get me points.
0: Oh, absolutely. All right,
1: good. Oh, man. good to know early. I might actually get fired after this episode. (laughs) Holy smokes. Oh, Mm Colonel Sullivan, really happy to have you on Pineland Underground today. Again, thanks for joining us. No, I appreciate it. So kind of diving in, uh, you know, the significance of us talking about the security force assistance brigades. This topic was pretty contentious about two, two and a half, three years ago. And really the messaging of, you know, what the security force assistance brigades were going to do, partnering with forces uh, overseas and, you know, really being AOR or, you know, area of operations and regionally aligned and focused. And then, you know, there's some other heartburn that came up there, too. But before we kind of dive into some of those things, you know, you've been a Special Forces soldier for the majority of your career. Talk to us about that decision or kind of that opportunity to go serve in the SFABs and take your experiences that you've had in Special Forces into this new unit or new assignment that we're we're generating.
2: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this, you know, such a prestigious podcast as... Chuck mentioned in the intro, um, I would rank it up there, you know, 30% of the time I listen to it all the time. Uh, all kidding aside, no, it's an excellent opportunity not only to talk about all things SFAB or fabulous but uh, my Special Forces career and kind of how that impacted how it got me to second SFAB. Uniquely enough, and I thank Chuck for not mentioning when I went to assessment and selection or when I graduated the Q course. But I'm one of the few guys still around that is a pre-9/11 volunteer in the active force as a special forces guy. So when I decided to join up, probably a longer story in a different podcast. I was late in my career. They were desperately in need of captains, and I was able to extricate myself from the USAR staff headquarters as a post Triple C graduate. Back then, went to the armor advanced course, so it still made me eligible to go to SFAS, but not the typical path. Decided, working next to a 10th uh, group guy who had come out of his time as a team leader, HHC commander, who talked to me about, hey, there's excellent opportunities out there besides staying as a field artilleryman. Something I was always interested in, I had a uh, special forces sergeant major in my ROTC department when I was in uh, ROTC at Claremont McKenna College, a 7th group guy. Always told stories about El Salvador and things that were going on in the 80s. You yeah. um, had. So very interested. And luckily for me, my wife was very supportive of the idea that go to assessment selection and and at least try to see if that you know was something that I was going to be able to do. It was the day we had we had finished the Q course and we were signing up, signing for our air items and our books for language school. When um, we're all listening to the radio, and planes started falling out of the sky and hitting buildings. So again, kind of the focus of what SF would do and what we all thought we were signing up for had changed. I thought I was signing up for a unit, you know, back then you had general officers here in your indoctrination that described it to your wives as Peace Corps with guns. We went to foreign countries to influence, you know, the ideas of national security by training our partners to be better at securing themselves and doing that business so American soldiers didn't have to go. We wanted to stay local. I didn't speak Spanish, so nobody wanted to go to third group back then because the African continent wasn't a cool place to go. Okay, everybody wanted to go to seventh, tenth, and first. Fifth and third were always open for volunteers, so I jumped on third because I knew we would stay local. And you know, at that time, it seemed to be a great decision for the family. Professionally, it would become a great decision if I would have you know been in, had a crystal ball and saw that third group was going to be the ones on Afghanistan, and it would take me there six times. But all in all, you know, I was signing up for what we saw as the FID mission, you know, you know whether it's the larger now framework of security force assistance. You know, I thought I'd be gone a couple months at a time. You pick the country on the continent, training folks with my team and coming back and having that experience that you wouldn't have anywhere else in the Army. So you have that going into, you know, what kind of drove me to take the chance at SFAS and making it. Now things changed pretty much, you know, overnight on 9-11 made it through language school and it was my first week on the team. My first jump, you know, so probably my like eighth jump in the army. We're on the drop zone and we get the word that first battalion is going to go. I was in Charlie company. They were only going to take two teams from Charlie company. My team was going to be one of them. We weren't going to combat. We were going to stand up the Afghan national army in the Kabul. Mm. So a lot of people can, you know, blame Mike Sullivan for how that went. If you want to blame the guys that started it and that first trip, my ODA was tagged with owning, back then, the third BANA, before we started calling them Kandaks of the Afghan National Army. Oddly enough, a lot of the NCOs and officers became part of the Corps, which would later be the volunteers for the commandos. So I saw a lot of the same folks throughout my six trips there, from my first one to my last one as a battalion commander. But again, you know, my pathway to special forces was that idea that if we're going somewhere we're helping somebody to take care of business themselves, you know, just to boil it down. If it's foreign internal defense, it's handling those internal security issues, you know, so we don't have to send a whole bunch of Americans and, you know, maybe we stay and help them do that. If it's we're not friendly to their government but there's people we are, then we're kind of doing the opposite where we're we're helping those people kinda of overthrow that government. You know, the the FID UW paradigm was what they taught us back then in the Q course, not much different than what we teach now.
1: Yeah, very much. So. With
2: all the other you know, mission sets that fall on an SFODA. But again, it was you know, kind of that night and day of understanding you're training somebody else to handle the business for them, maybe enabling, maybe supporting, maybe assisting, maybe going in with them, but for kind of opposite purposes in terms of like how we see that foreign government, whether it's friendly or not so friendly.
0: Since you said this is what you were signing up for, and this just goes along with, There's always been the argument of what's the value proposition of soft, right? And you've heard, oh, a language sets us apart or something else sets us apart, right? But I've always thought that's exactly what you said, that it's our value proposition is low cost, low American footprint through indigenous forces for longer duration, really using influence to achieve the end state. I don't know. That's kind of what I got out of what you just said is why you kind of joined. Yeah,
2: I would agree with that. That was a much better way of saying everything. It just took me like you know, five minutes to say, Chuck. <laughs> Should we get well, some listening. NCO points? Yeah, on maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe <you> know, <laughs> once again, NCO points I've for, never an NCO it took the officer a, five minutes to say time? what the NCO could say in 30 seconds. No, but I agree. Yes, I mean, it's through that. I mean, for me, obviously I was sold, right? Of the idea of, you know, a small team going to work with a foreign nation partner, given the mission set that you could achieve quite a bit now, in terms of like the value proposition, it does. You know, we, we've talked about it in the schoolhouse. The value we put, the resources we spend to produce a single RSOF soldier or officer, right? Whether it's CIA or or SF, it's We're probably more than today, more right? than yeah, more than what we probably invest in <laughs> in other MOSs, yeah. right? In the U.S. Army. So there is something to that. But I think in terms of the impact, you're right. Throughout my career, and even beforehand, I've always. Uh, I was a uh, history major in college. I wrote about. You know, my senior thesis was why the U.S. Army couldn't fight two wars simultaneously due to downsizing. You know, that was the big thing that people were looking at in the 90s. How do you create mass in a force that invests in technology, the speed at which it can react in a global environment when you're much smaller? Well, I personally see security force assistance or FID and that ability to put small teams alongside a partner that's willing and able. They might need some help that you may be able to increase your footprint, your mass against an enemy and influence what it can and cannot do without having to invest in U.S.-only mass, you know? So, you know, and I think it's the U.S. way of kind of doing things. We always look for a coalition. We always look for a partner. You know, it's just the way we see things.
1: I think to complement that too, uh, so, you know, 20 years in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, you know, Syria, of course, at the kind of tail end of those years, but we didn't stop special operations didn't stop operating across the globe in the other 70 nations coming from first group for example you know combat rotations to iraq and afghanistan back, refit, and then you're just shifting focus a little bit and then going back out into Asia and all those other partner nations that we're getting into. And I think as that kind of plays in and that value proposition, the generation of the SFAB, the Security Force Assistance Brigades, weren't focused primarily on Iraq, Afghanistan. The focus was on regional partners and going back out and continue to to leverage those relationships over time that we had had, but expanding those relationships across greater than just special operations, if I'm not mistaken.
2: The initial use of the SFABs was in Iraq and Afghanistan to relieve the pressure. One of the value propositions that General Milley said is we're overusing our SOF forces in the CENTCOM AOR, and they don't have the relief they need to be focused elsewhere. So that, in turn, with multiple years of... SFA, there's nothing new for the U.S. Army. You know, there's been different iterations between MITS, SPITS, you know, whatever, engagement team. So for General Milley, it was, we definitely have a way of doing business. And whether it's working, you know, by through and with our partners, providing them support, assistance, advice, liaison, opportunities, all of that exists in how we do things. And the, what we've been doing is pulling it out of the active force. So you had special operations. We still had our own problems where it comes to, you know, how we split ourselves up to support the mission. We were run thin. You were ripping leadership out of the entire army, leaving full brigades full of, you know, junior NCOs and enlisted while their officers went off to go train, support, you know, an Iraqi element or an Afghan unit. So it was a realization of we need a dedicated force to do that. So My words, not the SFAC or the SFAB, you know, kind of doctrine, but we would speak of when I took command, it was like Generation 1 was very much focused on the combat advice and assist in Afghanistan and Iraq and relieving pressure there. As those two theaters started to wind down, especially Afghanistan, there was a deliberate plan in place of it will take about three years to regionally align everywhere else. What they realized is there was too much work. There was plenty of opportunity and so the Gen 2 folks like myself were charged with, you know, we got to figure out how we get regionally aligned now and how does that look in the future so we can sustain what the SFABs can do globally, similar to what, you know, a regionally aligned, you know, RSOF force does. So, again, it evolved from that initial, like, hey, let's relieve pressure in CENTCOM to now it's best suited for a regional alignment. It's an example of the Army looking at the success RSOF has had over decades. You know, whether you look at Columbia, um, you could look at near-term CENTCOM AOR. I was the SOC Ford Lebanon commander. A decade of security force assistance essentially got them to a point where they were able to handle the ISIS problem themselves with very minimal U.S. support. It was just based on the training that we had done, you know, persistently over like nine years. I think those examples resonated with guys like General Milley in terms of, hey, we we could expand this across the conventional footprint as well and warfighting functions so we get more out of it, you know, in terms of that relative mass that we're trying to produce.
0: You know, it was very contentious within the special forces community, at least when the S-Fabs were coming. Everybody was like, oh, we are the ones that are doing FID. But just to put it in perspective, because you mentioned MITS, I can think all the way back to 2006 when I was in Ghazni, Afghanistan, and the Afghan Corps, brigades, and battalions had— normal army I think they were reservists or guard at the time advising them right so it wasn't a, it's not a new thing no they, they've been doing it forever and I think that same concept is what eventually evolved into the s fabs it was just more of a an active duty more professional role in my opinion because some of those guys were just over there just eating chow and and making poop, in my opinion. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but that's just that's just my opinion. No. That's, that's not an official stance of SWIC or the Army.
1: <laughs> it's solely just Sergeant Major Chuck Major.
0: But going back to <laughs> yeah, well, defining the SFAB, and I think we overuse the word value proposition all the time because although a positioning statement is part of a value proposition, the position statement is, okay, what really sets me apart on the playing field, not trying to sell it to somebody. I think we're at that point now with the SFABs because it's accepted, right? I haven't heard a whole lot of uproar lately, but moving back, when the SFABs first stood up, and I'd like you to define this generation, generation one, generation two, because you've talked about that and we've talked about that before, but how did it come up in the generation one guys? And, you know, we've talked about there was hate on both sides. Let's talk about that. Right. Why it stood up, hate, and what did generation one? Right. So, I mean, fortunately, again, timing-wise
2: for me, I was a, student at the War College in 17. So academic year 17 was my year at the Army War College, Carlisle. And this is when it had just started to become a thing. General Milley was discussing, hey, I'm going to stand up, you know, this, the 1st Brigade down at Benning, you know, it's going to be made up of 12 people. You know, they're, they're probably going to learn some language, understand the culture. We may do some special, like, assessment and selection you know, they'll work on those small teams. They'll be able to support themselves. They'll work off, you know, minimal guidance and intent and make great things happen. You know, they'll be kitted with the best kit. And who knows, maybe we'll give them something they wear on their uniform similar to a tab and a special hat to wear. His words, not mine, when he briefed AY-17 U.S. Army it War College. It went over real well, right? It went over great. <laughs> Wait, what? As you leave <laughs> the auditorium. And you go back to your, you know, your small room, your seminar to discuss what did the chief of staff of the army just say? And everybody in my room turns to me and says, I think you just lost your job. (laughs) (laughs) And isn't he a green beret? What's going on here? You know, so I I would say initially, even I was one of those guys kind of skeptical in terms of are we, the special forces community, the regiment at risk of losing maybe our identity and even potential some work, Hmm. if not all of it to something if the Army can find a better way, a more efficient way, an easier way, however we were discussing it, to create this thing. I mean, I got the idea that if you give them a special hat and a special badge, you know, people will want it and it will entice the right type of recruits, hopefully, that are willing to do something extra to earn something, you know, they value. Again, like, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery, right? So I I believe that, you know, General Milley, you know, having a special forces tab himself, recognized that after, you know, two decades of Green Berets being out front, the reputation that we were war fighters, we understood exactly what we, if you had a hard problem to solve, you gave it to a bunch of Green Berets, that by creating a conventional force that looked very much like that, maybe you replicate that same kind of success. And again, it's tied to getting the right people in, so maybe you offer them the same kind of things. Now, in terms of rolling it out, you know, in 2020 hindsight, was it the right thing, you know, in terms of were the right people consulted? Did we discuss it with the Special Forces Regiment that they shouldn't be threatened, that it was complementary in nature? I don't think those things were probably done.
1: And it's kind of like a marketing campaign, right, sir? Absolutely. It's, it's uh... Just has to be presented in the right way or messaged yeah. correctly. I think we've learned a lot of things, you know, here at Swick, for example. So it's all in the way it's presented, if I'm not mistaken, how it's kind of is received by the audience or the force.
2: No, absolutely. And I think even if you look like timeline-wise, America, 2016-17, mm-hmm. this is getting rolled out. Think about what's going on with social media, how people are start accepting that kind of information as you know what it is or what it isn't. There weren't podcasts like this, I think, that a lot of people were listening to, unlike they are now. So I think if you go back and look, I mean, I used to joke with an individual that was in First Brigade, that First Brigade that stood up, that hey man, your Facebook page was horrible. <laughs> like, you, know, you had certain pictures of people that did not come off as like the most professional thing. You know, they were just trying to get the word out. They were, you know, and and it was difficult because everything they did was publicized, whether it was in the Army Times, oh, yeah. on their Facebook. So before they could you, may, you know maybe do a marketing kind of test of hey do we think this patch looks good? It was already out. Like here's the new patch. It's an arrowhead, it's got a lightning bolt, you know. It's got a long tab that says Combat Advisor, you know, and quickly realized okay, that looks a lot like something else. Maybe we should dial that one back in and tie it more back to maybe the Mac V history. You know if you look at the patch now you got the stars that are very similar to you know the advisory groups that weren't just special operations mm-hmm. during that time so they tried to you know pull back that lineage um and make some some more informed decisions but again things would get ahead of themselves and real
0: quick for listeners when he says macabee that was just military assistance command in vietnam not to be confused with macabee sog
1: but exactly. like macabee
0: like my dad was part of Maccabees, was an air force guy like it's not it's just what it was but before we go too far I awarded you two NCO points because talking about SF, you said, if you get got a problem, you'll I'll solve it, which is a Vanilla Ice quote. Which <laughs> 100%. percent <laughs> dun 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 dun, dun. <laughs>
1: that's, that's freaking awesome. You know what Vanilla Ice's real name is, by the way? I have no idea. Ten officer points to you, Colonel Sullivan. If I know Vanilla Ice's real name?
0: Yeah. Vinny Costanza. I
1: don't know. Rob Van Winkle. Yeah, that's, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Miami
2: boy a home improvement right. show now.
1: Can you help us understand for our listeners, in Special Forces we have a couple different roles or core missions that we do. One of that is unconventional warfare we focus primarily on because we're typically the only entity throughout the Department of Defense that focuses on that resistance style. But the others are uh, include Security Force Assistance and Foreign Internal Defense, so SFA and FID. Can you kind of help us understand what the differences are and how those two are approached, and then what you know how we kind of compare those two.
2: Okay, you know doctrinally, if you dive into it, I think
1: what you'll find like the biggest difference
2: between security force assistance and foreign internal defense is the focus of the in-state of the security apparatus that you're helping to build, make better. You know, you're you're trying to build capacity, cohesion, you know, and um, capabilities in that partnered force it's tied to foreign internal defense. There's definitely a threat to that government that you're working that is threatening the government itself internally, you know, whether it's, you know, a a terrorist organization, whether it's, you know, some sort of other entity. It's not tied potentially to exporting that security outside of that nation's boundaries right. right security force assistance is a little bit larger in terms of that scope right it's it's building those same capabilities cohesion and capacity in that foreign force but as you know a force that could do it internally but also export that security if necessary so you're doing a lot of the same things uh, it's just the purpose of which is a little bit different i think you know, for us as special forces officers and NCOs, it's that understanding of it's the opposite side of UW, right? So if I understand how to overthrow a government, then I should how understand how I build the apparatus and the security to stop the people from overthrowing the government, FID. Mike Sullivan's definition, not necessarily the right. doctrine, right? SFA, yeah, FID could be a part of that in the, in terms of the larger scope. But also, I may, I may have to have the capability to export that security apparatus to Defend my borders further out, defend a partner that's in, you know, my neighborhood. You pick the continent and the AOR. Again, what the difference in terms when you look at SFAB and SF or the RSOF regiment is in terms of special forces, multiple different missions. You mentioned some of them. Security force assistance, it's security force assistance. Oh yeah, yeah. The difference comes on where you see yourself, you know, as... My boss used to break it down in terms of the, you know, continuum of conflict, probably some officer points coming in that one, you know, where you look at, you know, at the low end, it's competition. It's whether we're saying near peer, peer, peer peer-like, whatever the new term is, you know, officers trying to get points. But it's that idea that we're building, again, capabilities, capacity, and a foreign partner to help us deal, whether it's with a threat in their neighborhood, with one of our peers, or to influence you know, that peer to do something, maybe invest more, um, or they have to invest more, let's say, in the AFRICOM AOR than they were going to, which pulls away from assets globally, you know, if we're talking about like a China, a Russia type of entity. It then continues down, you know, the continuum of conflict to crisis and then conflict itself. And within each one of those kind of environments, as an advisor, you know, as an SFA unit, you'll be doing different things. It's still security force assistance, but where you were very heavy, maybe on advising, training down in competition, helping to build capacity and capabilities, you get to crisis, you're going to war with what you got, whether it's us or our partner. And now you're more in that support, liaise and assist role. The advising maybe comes down a little bit, and again, you can lean on those SFAB teams to be that linkage back to the larger force. Very much like you would have special operators with their partners, whether it's forward, you know, or in and around the fight. Ideally, you would have advisory teams working warfighting functions at the conventional level, helping partners to hold off whatever they got in terms of crisis and conflict until, you know, the US Army can bring and DOD could bring more to bear, whether it's, you know, through partners, you know materials, whatever it is, you know that would be the role. But the, it's SFA throughout. You're not going to see a maneuver advisory team led by a captain going on a DA hit. You know they're not going to go out and do SR. Will they sit back in a brigade or a battalion level talk and work with the partnered force to get their scouts out and understand that mission set? Absolutely. But ideally, they're enabling that to happen. You're not going to see them. You know for the most part going along you know I used to describe it in with my guys that if we were able to find ourselves in Lisko you would put the teams in terms of that big conventional fight at the points of friction you okay. would put your engineer teams at the you know the river crossing they're not building the bridge but they're understanding what goes into building the bridge they're helping you know the Polish Brigade get across the river and then they're the linkage to talk back to the U.S. brigade that's then going to execute that most dangerous passage of lines and be in that liaison element, you know, understanding that friction that comes, you know, in terms of mobility. Right. Same thing when you look at the other warfighting functions. So I think you know it, it's a little bit, it's it's at a different level when we start talking <clears throat> about conflict as opposed to what we would probably be asking our teams to do, which is a myriad of different types of, you know, operations beyond the scope of just FID.
0: And just for our listeners, when you talking about LISCO, it's just large-scale combat operations. Yes. I think that's something It's you know, it sounds stupid. as was go like, oh, well, I just got to talk about Doctrine again. But the FM3-0 has a lot in there, and I don't. I think if we don't start wrapping our heads around that, more, even in Special Forces, we could quickly find ourselves uh, in a bad place. But anyway, back to the SFA or the SFAB part. A lot of what they do, too, that we can't do is they're advising at the brigade, in the battalion level in warfighting functions that we really don't have the capability to do, like fires, Is that, I mean, am I correct with that one? Yes. And it's limited in capacity too, cause you gotta look at,
2: same thing, ranks, experience of the folks that are over there, whether it's at the lowest tactical advisory team up to like the battalion advisory team, say in the fires battalion. That fires battalion commander, who's a second time battalion commander who probably served as a fist cord in a division somewhere At certain times, you know, like in the 82nd, he's going to bring an experience to bear that even I couldn't have done as a special forces battalion commander. Right. I don't have that specific, you know, understanding. I have some field artillery knowledge because that's where I came from branch wise. I understand joint fires and the integration of in a tactical fight. But that larger, like specific understanding of the friction points, the planning, the things that need to go into place. You know, the swivel chair type of operations are going to have to happen because our systems don't talk to anybody else else's systems in the world, like AFATADS boxes, don't ask me the acronym. Maybe you can break it down, Chuck, like you're really good at. the That guy's going to be able to work at that level, like that division up to core level. Now, asking that captain who just came out of battery command to now move up to a DeVardy, a brigade, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. Again, I, I see that their role being more in that liaison element down to like a battalion fires element, and understanding what their capabilities are, what they can do to support the fight, and then what they see as the gaps that they know the U.S. you know fires could bring conventionally to that partner. And that is the kind of the unique thing in how that w- the brigades were built. So the brigades really small, 820 people if they were 100% manned, three maneuver battalions made up of and, and everybody in terms of the officer side are second time like KD. So, like, uh,
1: so lots of experience. A lot there. of
2: experience. Okay. So, um, the Army is investing in terms of like leadership. They may not be pulling it out of a brigade and leaving the brigade leaderless like they were doing during, you know, the Iraq and times of doing like MITS in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But they are accepting risk that a lot of this leadership and experience is being pulled into the SFAD to be used again. So, you got three maneuver battalions, all pretty much organized the same way, but two are infantry battalions and then a, a CAV squadron that's commanded by an armor officer. In terms of their basic SFA day to day, what we do, all three like capability understanding of where they would plug and play. Those battalions have three companies, and those three companies have three teams. So, again, captains with a senior E7. As their team sergeant, you move up, you know, a first sergeant with a major at the company level and then a battalion commander with his uh, command sergeant major. And again, command team wise, you're looking at second time folks. So second time battalion commander, second time CSM, KD qualified major that's done his S3XO time out there in the maneuver force somewhere alongside a second time first sergeant. And then at the captain level, it's a guy who came out of being a you know an infantry company commander, maybe at the 82nd, and then he comes down to 2nd Fab. Now he's got 11 folks that's working for him. Not necessarily built like we are. Again, everyone thought, okay, General Milley just copied the 12 persons. I bet you there's two people of like MOSs. They all do the same thing. No, it's pretty much one off. So You have a lot. It's a little bit infantry heavy for like the maneuver uh, with 11 Bravos, but then you got a 92, you got a MI series. NCO and you have a communicator ideally you have a 13 Fox low density MOS in the army so not all the teams have their 13 Foxes so you have a semblance of each warfighting function when you plug and play in large-scale combat operations ideally you have an element that could go into I would say a battalion level headquarters and understand the problems that they're trying to work through and at least understand how we would solve them and then who they need to ask at a higher headquarters like, hey, this is the problems these guys are having. Because again, that E-5, E-6, 92 Yankee probably isn't gonna work on the same scale as a 04 logistics officer that has that same experience like
0: in one of our battalions or brigades. And they're totally focused on that advisory role. Yes. right. And I think that's just for example, we sometimes do the same things. We'll take Afghanistan, for example, where you have one ODA aligned to Afghan Candec, right? But you're trying to advise the tactical level, the battalion level, and you're taking them out on operations. So it is impossible, right? It's just an impossibility. So, I mean, if I could go back and envision, like, man, what would the power of an SFAB be with a commando Kandak with an ODE or two combining their powers right. to actually build a battalion staff that works right. and companies and the elements on the ground that can actually go and do things? Yeah. How cool would that have been?
2: No, it had been awesome. And I think we, we attempted, just like the Army did, like with SFA in Afghanistan or Iraq, where it was pulled from brigades or maybe it was the National Guard folks that made up the mitts, whatever it is. You know, I think there would be folks that, looking back now, and we even had these discussions, right? So you had Sodafay, like I was the, the first. We were at the end of OEF, our rotation, and the start of RSM. And there was a big discussion of, okay, the siege of SOTAF has gone away. We're not going to be doing although we continued on for years, combat operations. Yeah, we kept doing. (laughs) Right? Still Um, happening. Should we move this? You guys are supposed to be these great advisors that could understand how you would run things. Why don't we replace all those guys at Camp Commando that work with Anasoc or the Commando headquarters with the SODIF? You guys don't have to worry about battle tracking and getting food out to the teams and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You guys will just You'll be advising and working alongside your counterparts just like the odas are at the uh you know commando level you know it was and we we're like yeah we could do that but then we realized quickly no we can't do that it's 24 7 managing multiple teams out on combat operations mm-hmm. i don't have time to sit down and talk to a guy about his readiness <laughs> schedule and whether he's you know yeah. he's doing his logistics correctly so we hired a whole bunch of other special operators some contractors you know that were down there at camp command doing amazing work
0: but again it was Hire a we, bunch we of civilians. That, and to hire a civilian to work himself out of a job is brilliant, right? Cause that's what they're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great idea. Plead the fifth. I <laughs> have a lot of good friends that were those civilians, yeah, yeah. but I do want to go back in time and, you know, when when we said the day that it was announced that we had no more boots on the ground,
1: is the day I got shot in the hand. I was like, whoa, I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even there. You weren't even on the ground. <laughs> Um, well, that's, that's a common term, though. I mean, you'll you watch things on, on the media as well. It's like, ah, oh, there's no boots on the ground. We just have advisors. And it's like, whoa, like, what, what does that actually mean? Yeah. You know, for some of our listeners, that's, that's, uh, that's a realm that, that, you know, the three still, of us we're here. on combat mission that we're still losing yeah. people for.
2: Well, and I think if you look at the way senior leaders are talking about, whether it's the use of special operations and RSOF in preparation for a future, you know, whether it's a crisis or conflict, is that we would already be forward so you're going to already have boots on the ground and i think you'll see the same thing with how you have the disposition of the s fabs if they're fully manned they got 20 teams out persistently engaging across you know cocoms at all times you know i think our high water mark was close to like 15 or 16 of the teams oh, wow. in africa before i left fourth brigade who owns ucom they're over cuz they deployed their brigade team which isn't part of the 20 so they had like 21 teams that were in Eastern Europe working, you know, SFA once things started to get a little bit hot. I think you'll see that going forward, that you're always going to have some sort of advisor, whether it's a conventional force advisor or a soft advisor that's going to find themselves in the middle of it, whether by design or just by, you know, geography. It's so always a great touch
0: point, right?
1: Keep that channel open. Right. right. What are the brigades currently focused on right now, sir? Just like, uh, I know you said you, you just left your brigade. What, Give us kind of just an overview, if you could, of each of the brigades and their kind of primary focuses right now.
2: Uh, so again, you know, relatively, you know, in terms of competition, what you'll find, I think, across all the brigades is deployments of teams specifically to do, you know, training. With, where we found ourselves at is was in a lot of schoolhouses okay. across different African countries. Some with specific units that had um, relationships. Some that we took from our soft elements or joint soft elements that no longer. We're in the AOR, so a perfect example in Tunisia. There's you know a special operations brigade that the Tunisians have. Um, Marsoft used to have it. We soft touched it a little bit, the you know, SF guys. But the investment at the brigade level never was really there. Okay. So in terms of day-to-day, how do we run a brigade? How do I build a readiness cycle? What does that staff stuff look like? Perfect for one of my major-led teams to go in there, start working with them in terms of understanding. Because they owned a CT element that... You know, tactically perfect place for a JSET to happen, relationships for, you know, an SF unit. And while my team was there, they had two separate iterations. I think one of a National Guard element one of a third group element coming to train with that specific battalion. But there were other battalions that weren't necessarily considered a unit that we would partner with with a U.S. SOF element. So we could give them a touch point in terms of making sure that, hey, you need to make sure you resource the training correctly. This is how we would do it. You know, it's the same problem set. Understand the way their doctrine looks, understand ours, and then work for a common solution that works best for them is ideally the way we would do it. Um, so you had unit to unit type of stuff like that. Other parts of Africa, you have places like in Morocco where they want to build another soft unit um, similar to one they already have. They're building and out of a conventional infantry unit. Well, until it's at a level that it'd be best comparable for like J sets and things to happen. How about you put an SFAB team against it because all they're doing is really advanced infantry training and understanding again a lot of that staff work and integration of warfighting functions. Okay. So put an SFAB against it, get it to a point that then you hand it off, so it frees up a third group team to go someplace else where they're needed or buy back you know readiness because their dwell is not as you know where it needs to be. So relieving pressure there. So that's what we were doing across the continent. The other thing again, unique that Chuck hit is you know I had logistics teams. The problem, I knew we'd run out really quick. It took a little longer than I thought. But once people realized, like, even like as you're especially at the start of what was going on in Ukraine, that logistics is really going to drive, like, the future of conflict. We had teams persistently in Senegal and another one that was out in Djibouti, again, working with logistics units only on, you know, how do they manage that, whether it's at the, you know, really right out of the capital, pushing it out to their tactical levels building basic systems that they can manage themselves, you know, don't burden them with a whole bunch of computers and digital stuff the way we would do it, but like let's figure out what what will work for the Senegalese so they can better manage their own logistics. Again, not something necessarily you're going to ask a, you know, we would say we could, oh, we could get a bunch of 18 Charlies. That's the uh, you know, their other mm-hmm. thing is to be the S4 on the team, right? No, I got some actual logisticians. Not that on that yeah, scale. Not,
0: not right. at that yeah, the scale right. or that level. We, we can see now that, you know, probably would have benefited Russia to have some SFAB teams over there with their logistics. <laughs> <laughs> probably would have.
2: The, uh, and then the same for, like, the engineers are working with engineer units because I have engineer teams in my 5th battalion. And then I had, uh, you know, I got the field artillery teams were primarily working in schoolhouses in Kenya, up in Tunisia. That's what we were doing in AFRICOM and like missions across all the other AORs. And those are the uh, things
0: we can't even do in it, in special forces, right? Because we right. don't have those 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 skills.
1: Yeah, we don't have that expertise. Yeah, that's that's
0: uh, that's. We can say we do, but you're not teaching like fires at that level. You're teaching like I can go up to 120 millimeter mortars, sure. and do a fire plan. That's about it. The rest of it, that's you know, that's why you have a, a guy that went to a whole. Course on fires or to be, logistics. Yeah, right?
1: to be like a truly subject matter expert in that field, right. and then coming to equate this as, as a consulting, you're taking like entities, pulling what we have and you know in our structure here in the U.S. military, right. you know, injecting it into our partners, but also taking a look at the resources they have available to them. The, the systems, the processes, what works for them, and making sure they can run most efficiently as they can, but also developing that relationship within so that we can learn from one another. Yeah, exactly. And it provides an excellent opportunity
2: for a bunch of American soldiers to be provided an opportunity to problem solve, right? so okay. And again, when we didn't touch upon it, but what makes it unique about making it a you know deliberate unit that has a short assessment and selection, its own short kind of, you know, qualification course. I think it was 60 days. I think they're cutting it down because they realized they can do some more at home station. You're picking the people that want to do this kind of work that can understand that I may be a, an incredible warfighter, but if I can't communicate how you do that with somebody else, I'm not going to succeed as an advisor. So similar type of folks is who we're looking for. And it provides them then an opportunity to problem solve downrange. So like Kenya is a perfect example. They're at the schoolhouse you're dealing with a weapon system that looks a lot like our light, you know, howitzer, but it's the British version, different sights. We didn't give them all the stuff for the the version we have, and they're cobbling together British sights, British ways of basically laying the gun in place so they know where it's out on the ground and how you fire it with a older US system. US trained field artillerymen digging into both British and U.S. doctrine, and then figuring out, hey, we came up with a solution how you could place this gun safely on the ground and know exactly where it's pointed. And the Kenyans can now replicate that with what they got, because they didn't get all the same stuff, whether it was from us or the British when we gave them these things. So they're pressed to problem solve in an environment where they're using the skills that they've been given by the U.S. Army. And then ultimately... You know, the kind of the difference in the RSOF model is it's three years. You're in an SVAB for three years. Okay. Unless you're, you know, battalion commander or battalion, you know, like brigade commander, it's two. But all those that volunteer, it's a three-year gig. You're on an 18th-month cycle. So if you get in there right, if we did it right, we got you there right at the start of your individual cycle. You do six months of individual training. They do what they call the TRAP. But it's the Training Readiness Assessment Program, TRAP. Everybody would use the Star Trek, you know, Admiral Akbar, it's a TRAP when we talked about it. <laughs> But again, it's kind of like an EIB type of situation where we take them through their specific MOS skills, you know, go out to Area J for us here on, you know, in Fort Bragg, and they go through the stations to prove as an individual advisor, I know these things. And it would be tied to MOS as well. So the, the log guy, there was some common to all, like advisory tasks, kind of shoot, move, communicate, medicate, but then there's the additional you guys have your own METS
0: for that or do you guys use the Army METS?
2: Use the Army METS. The challenge that we had was folks trying to determine, how do I assess an individual advisor on being an individual advisor? Is there a communications test? Is there, like, can I write effectively, do I have to brief back something? And we were trying to iterate through, how do you test that individual on the fact that they'll be okay when you put them in front of a foreign partner when it comes to training, advising, assisting? So then we continued to try to, we got different ideas and we were, I think they're still trying to iterate on that. Then they get into the collective phase, six months, it ended, you know, with a Valex for us, you know, we, the groups would call it PMT, but built a, you know, scenario out. We were using one of the local contracted training areas out near Camp McCall. The guys would actually go live and fall freedom out there and then they would drive to work and we'd have foreign partners. We had a environment where they, you know, they flew into country and had to go to customs for the first time. So we put them through all the, you know, things that they wouldn't be used to doing on their own Mm -hmm. as a small team. You don't have brigade on a, you know, C-17 arriving in Kenya. You're flying commercial.
0: They go through like a mini SEER school or anything or any kind of training for that? There is
2: SEER training that they can, uh, like, they can go to SEER school. Mm -hmm. Some of the guys will go. Not a requirement. um, And it's something that we were trying to work into, like, how do we work that in? Even if it's just like some sort of, you know, tactical questioning and understanding because you may get that secondary check at the airport. Just you do customs and all that. Yeah, so we
1: worked through all that. Yeah, come to this back room for (laughs) screening. Uh, Yeah, and we
2: we put them through all that stuff. And the the funny thing is when we did it the first time, and again, a lot of it was based on my experience because, you know, I'm like, oh, this is easy. This this is what we did with third group teams when we were going back into Africa after my second year in command. We got to get the teams ready for that kind of environment again. It's not Afghanistan. So I pulled on that experience, but people were like, this is not real. But it was that second iteration when the teams had gone, and then you know they're playing the customs guy, and he's like, "This would never happen." He goes, "It happened to me three times when I went into two different countries. Like, they're going to ask for your fingerprints. They're going to ask you to take a photo. Just give it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just an advisor. Like, you, there's nothing secret about what you do. <laughs> like, you know, own it." So once I get through that Valex, we rack and stack the teams, make sure the right teams are going to the right mission. Some teams didn't get validated, you know, and we either if. The advisors were needed. We would put them on other teams so they can get their deployment. And ideally, you'd do that iteration twice, so you'd get two deployments out of your time in an SFAB, and then you're right back in a conventional unit, right down the street at the 82nd again, using all that experience, yeah. that problem problem solving. I mean, just things you can't replicate, you know, at a CTC or otherwise. So you get to wear your
0: combat patch if you were in. A combat so
2: area? if you were in a combat area, so the guys going to like Djibouti and Somalia.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah.
2: so the, just approved, you know, I visited BFC, I was talking to my sergeant major just last, my old sergeant major, he's like, hey, you know, you're authorized to wear your advisor patch because we spent, you know, two weeks in Djibouti. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, the guys are wearing them I and it's it's great. I mean, because it, it's one of the few places besides our software, if you get that kind of deployment, you're yeah. still going to have that patch, which there's a whole bunch of people that signed up to be in the Army that thought that's what they were signing up for. So it gives them an opportunity to deploy into an environment where they see themselves having an impact not everywhere i mean there's other guys that have experiences may vary if you're in kenya and you're living near the game preserve and the yeah you know, and all that other stuff it's a lot nicer than if you're you know in somalia but
1: i i like that you described that though sir individuals who come to the S.F.A.B. you know typically spend three years there to get you know about two deployments, so great operational experience overseas, working with partners, problem solving—you know, truly that pre-mission training or that validation exercise, you know, the full cycle of training. Then they get to go out and do it—you know, instruct, advise, consult—all those types of things as experts with a with a partner. And then after that three years, we get to inject them back into our army, so they're taking that knowledge and experience, excitement, and really you know bring that back to to the force as well. That's huge. Yeah, absolutely. I know Ranger Regiment does it. Uh, very similarly as well, where you, you don't stay there, you don't you don't kind of homestead for a good period of time. You come back, you share, because I don't, that's what makes our people better. That's what makes our our units a little bit better and, and shares that kind of wealth of problem solving. So I do like that model. I think it's
2: effective. I mean, there was discussions while I was over there. People would ask me, "Hey, you ca- you came from you know the side of the street where we split you off. We made you your own regiment once you changed your MOS." You're like, i get asked that question all the time don't you think this should be its own mos like once you become an advisor you're an advisor and i was like well i don't think so because i always saw it as hey it that kind of work we're not just making other armies better you know I, I joke i was like hey we're the 3m of you know of army units we make all armies better to include our own you know we don't create the doctrine we just make the doctrine better that's for you chuck i know you love doctrine by going back you're bringing that experience back and ideally you're coming back to the SFAB if you enjoyed it for a second or a third turn and you're bringing that new knowledge of what the conventional force has done in the last three years while you were gone. You know, the, the Army is continuing to modernize, right? So if you moved yourself out of a unit that was looking at it in mass, and you go back to division and you see what they're doing now, okay, this is a new TTP, this is a new way, you know, 3O just came out, this is brand new, you know, we were talking about this stuff in 2nd SFAB, but now I see how the Army's realizing it. You get some CTC rotations under your belt, and then you get back in at the next level, you know, back in one of the brigades, and you could bring that back, you know, to foreign partners if that's what you want to do. Or you just stay back. You know, again, General Jackson, who was the second SFAT commander who I worked for pretty much my entire time, you know, he said the difference between, like, you know, ARSOF and the advisory, you know, the brigades, is that very similar type of people want to sign up. Yeah. Right. In terms of, they want that a chance to be, you know, working in a small element. You got a little bit of guidance, a lot of permissions, you know, a whole lot of resources and you get to go get after it. True you know, mission,
0: for, true mission command environment. Right? right.
2: The, you know, the, the difference is it's a person that's like, I really love being an engineer and I didn't want to give that up. So I'll go do the S thing for a while. I get to touch that. I get to see what that's all about. I get that responsibility and then I get to bring that back to the engineer corps. I'm not okay. I'm not leaving forever, you, you know? Mm-hmm. I would joke with my guys, I was like, it only took me 20 years to get back into the army, you know? <laughs> so just based on the other jobs I had, I never touched, you know, the conventional army once I became a, a Green Beret, but then I went back, you know? So, and it was an easy environment. Cause again, it was a lot of very similar <laughs> like-minded individuals that wanted to work in small teams. I'd have to remind myself they didn't have the same experience level, sure. you know? I would get mad at that first, like, three or four months. I'm like, I don't understand why my team sergeants don't understand how you get 11 other people ready to do these kinds of Mm -hmm. things. And they're like, sir, they're used to, like, working in a company and being told from the guys at Brigade, this is how you're going to get your entire company ready for this thing. Mm -hmm. And now you're telling them to do it all on their own, giving them all this freedom, you know, for mission command to figure it out. You know, and they're working through that, and they'll get there. But it's not an E-8 that has, you know, eight years of team time under his belt mm-hmm. and maybe a SWCC rotation. Well, we get
0: mad. at like, this guy's trying to tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly. Just sit around waiting. Exactly. To so do. I'm like, why are all these guys asking me to Will you just tell us what you want us to do? What do you want us to do? And I'm like, that's not what this is about. You guys are supposed to figure that out.
1: <laughs> you tell me what you think you can do, and I'll yeah. provide you resources. Exactly. I kind of wanted to ask them... Um, with any new unit standing up from inception, right? There's always a reach to try to figure out what that identity is. I think we saw that a little bit with the Space Force, for example. They relied, you know, kind of focused on some creative ways to Got to a market themselves. Great song that just came out. Great song. Have you heard it?
2: They have a Space Force song. You haven't
0: heard Keys it. Can you sing it? No. no, but how many bars? <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll insert into the notes for this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> But no, ah, Colonel Sullivan, we, would you mind kind of talking to us? So, the SFABs have been around for a little bit. How is that identity forged, you know, from kind of inception through where they are and through learning what they are going to be? Absolutely. And then through having reps and experience, and what is that kind of like right now?
2: It's hard for me to speak to the initial identity, having been, like I said, I, I refer to myself as a second generation guy because I arrived at second SFAB maybe I think they'd been back for six months from the rotation they executed both in Iraq and Afghanistan. First, all went to Afghanistan. Second, majority went to Afghanistan and then some went to Iraq as well. Um, And then it started to cut back just based on what was happening in Afghanistan and Iraq based on the need and where we, you could probably see where the writing was on the wall. But that initial identity was, and tied to, you know we talked about the, the patch, but combat advising. The folks that were Gen 1 guys were like, we signed up to go to combat to advise and to do this thing right for the first time. You know, the MITs didn't really get it right. The SF guys could only cover down on, you know, what became ANASOC. You know, they started out trying to do it all, and then they focused it in. And th- there was some pride in that. There's also, like, you know, from the outside looking in, again, being that guy at the War College. And then I went to Lebanon to be SOC 4 Lebanon commander. And I continued to follow First SFAB on Facebook because I was very interested to see where this was, thing was going to go. I personally was, thought it was a great investment. Like the army needs this. When I was in Lebanon, the way they were built, they were built on like these brigades, regimental like brigades, like they had an armor brigade, a field artillery brigade, logistics brigade, a whole bunch of special operations, like little units that were doing a lot of great stuff that we had teams with. And I was like, man, if I even like reached out to Arsent and said, hey, why don't you send me a logistics team, an armor team, a fires team and I'll plug them right into these Lebanese Armed Forces units that I don't touch as a special operator other than asking for stuff, yeah. you know, to support the guys that are out there doing things. And they're like, no, they're all going to Afghanistan. Part of that I think was part of General Milley, I wanted to build the identity immediately that they were tested, you know, tried and true, like we put them into combat and they, they were able to execute and it was better than what we had done in the past. So. You know, there was a proof of concept like we're going live right from the start which put a lot of pressure on those those first you know two brigades you know it, it then followed with third and fourth fifth went straight into pacom because the writing was already on the wall and there, that was you know obviously been the hotness it's been for a while now in terms of competition the other interesting thing is, like, social media-wise, like it, it, I could—I got very interested when I realized I was going to go over there. Like, hey, let's, let's see what everyone's saying about themselves and everything else. And there was this, like, you talk about the identity of the hate. The S-Fabs started to embrace the idea, in my opinion, that they were the anti-Green Berets. And they loved the animosity that was between the two. Okay. Because they liked being the, you know, kid that was getting beat up in the room and they were going to prove themselves, and they did it in Afghanistan, they did it in Iraq, keep picking on us because, you know, we can, we can do this too kind of attitude. Um, there are some very interesting meme pages on both sides because I found that there were some Green Beret <laughs> ones that were specifically built to make fun of the SFAB folks, and then there was the SFAB folks that were either making fun of themselves or making fun of Green Berets making fun of them. I mean, it was <laughs> like this, you know. Well, we'll you've co- been
0: quoted as saying that, Anything special forces can do, S-Fabs can do better, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I've said That's that probably now. on a meme somewhere. I think I said that multiple times.
2: Yeah, I, 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 yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. No, I don't think I said that. The uh, but there was. I mean, it was it was really interesting. And it's the funny thing now is that I think it is more accepted in terms of the complementary nature. We've seen each other downrange. People are working with each other.
0: They're coming over groups uh, now. We had them over at third group. Yeah, you got you third know. group guys there's coming good over relationships. You know, else, a couple people
2: in, in second SFAB, My time over there. So I think there's still a few folks out there. It's, it's, get on Instagram. <laughs> Name of the like two S Fabulous was one. That was the one that represented Second Battalion. You know, there's the softest tab. There's a whole oh, bunch oh. of real, <laughs> a lot of different brown beret references, and and there was some. If you go back far enough, there's some good. Like if you get in the comments, Ooh, nice. you know, like you're not going to take our job. We don't want your job. You know,
1: back and forth kind of things. Oh, keyboard keyboard warriors. There was yeah, a lot of so the old school green berets that were just
0: up in the air. Yeah. and still to this day, it's like we control FID. It's like okay, well it is S F A B. So okay, maybe you do control FID, but right? No, absolutely. A right, but maybe not. There's no way you can.
2: But it, it is complimentary, right? So I think most of our partners realize like the best way to build a special operations unit is to take from the best things in their conventional units. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't it be great if you had really good conventional partnered units to now build a soft unit from? Mm-hmm. Don't spend a SF team trying to go find to the infantry schoolhouse and you pick the country in Africa.
0: Send, to, some there, right? send some infantry there, right? Send some infantry there, you know. Yeah.
2: Don't pull them out of the dock, Don't pull them out of, you know, Fort Benning. You don't have enough drill sergeants to do what they need to do down there. And, oh, by the way, different type of mentality of a person that you want that's going to, you know, be fine living on a base in because Kenya. The, the reality is, is an, an infantryman
0: house. can out-infantry in SFK, right? Because I grew up in the infantry, right? So three years of having that stuff pounded in my head versus... Going through eight weeks of small unit attacks in the Q course, there's a big difference there. And I know that people are like, oh, what are you talking about? But most, if you're in the infantry, you can now infantry most Green Berets because that's your job, right? It's
1: just what it is. I, I think there's going to be a meme out there with Chuck's face Probably, on it that yeah. says that. But that's it is. Okay. pretty good.
2: I like it. I'm <laughs> yeah. just saying. It's true. I, I
1: took a lot of pride being an infantryman back in the day. That was cool. But
0: it's just what it is, right? I mean, a team sergeant's job on a team is to not no, train these guys, but coming out of. The infantry course and basic training is going to set you up, but then when you're an infantry unit and you're just doing that over and over again, you're very good at it. That's no, that's a true statement,
2: right? So, you know, again, as we you look at the SFAB and then how they kind of evolved, you know, there was this idea by General Milley that hey, if there was large-scale combat operations, the greatest thing ever is I have five brigades worth of leadership. I'll just pour in brand new privates, and now I have five brigades. I have a I have a division plus of combat power. Of leadership just out there ready to like pick up if we need it yeah. that's evolved it's a good to way to fr- get
0: around the no growth environment right well
2: right so you, you keep the leadership and then right I mean, mm-hmm. that was an idea that you know he thought this would s- protect some of the investment you have in all these leaders what it's evolved into now is the realization of well we'd be even better if we push that leadership forward into a partnered element as an advise assist liaise support element And that becomes that linkage so you don't have to pull it out of a core headquarters. You don't have to pull it out of the division staff. It's ready-made to immediately go in. Relative mass is built by our partners. You can help them do better things before we can get there. Maybe we don't even ever have to go. So that evolved. Now, the reason why I bring that up is you got Mike Sullivan, Special Forces Colonel, and we're having these discussions between the brigades and the Security Force Assistance Command in terms of, hey, we're changing the doctrine. So that means we go to war. Mike Sullivan, you're ready to advise a corps commander, infantry, like maneuver guy who's lived that his entire life on how he should be maneuvering his brigades in a large scale combat operation. And again, I had to self-assess and I'm like, well, sir, I'm pretty sure I could problem solve and I could do the liaison piece and I could understand. I understand doctrinally the problems they're going to have. I've been in a warfighter as a Sagittif B guy as the three at SF command. I understand the friction around some of those things we test ourselves against as an army. But when push comes to shove, my DCO, who is a career infantry officer, is the guy I'm going to be looking to Mm -hmm. when we're having the big brain discussions about large scale maneuver warfare.
0: Yeah, right. Because
2: that's his bread and butter. He grew Mm -hmm. up doing that. I did not. He has the experience that I don't have. I may have the the education, but not that same experience. And I go, and that's something you got to look at long term in terms of like, if that's where the SFABs go, do we think a 06 SF guy is always the best guy for that job? He can problem solve. He understands readiness of small teams, the conflict space in terms of influencing against Russian and Chinese, you know, folks that are trying to do the same thing on the continent, probably the right guy for the job. You know, you need to put together a task force Ukraine. Is Mike Sullivan that 06 you want in charge of that advisory core element? Or do you want the guy who grew up as a armor commander and just got out of being an armor brigade combat team commander who's the second SFAB maybe that's the better choice you know we had those kinds of discussions so again it kind of goes to your point you know the infantrymen should be able to out infantry you know just what it is the special right forces
0: I do have a question you were the second brigade commander so this, this is actually a question for Bobby so their slogan was everyone fights where does that come from you can gain an officer point
1: the marine corps
0: what? what? No. Starship Troopers. <laughs> Which still. were they about Marines? It? We've talked about it. it. Another. No, they were Mobile Infantry. Yeah. <laughs> everyone wow, you get everyone knows that. <laughs> anyway, we've talked about this book in other
2: episodes. Not military intelligence. <laughs> the Mobile Infantry. But I think you work with this guy? <laughs> yeah,
1: I know,
0: right? <laughs> what the... But I think there's one fictional book that I think that you can classify that as a leadership book. Like when you read it, you're like, "Man, this is brilliant." I don't know where you get why you put the slogan in there, but I always thought that the book was. No, I
2: I inherited the slogan from
0: General Hill. I thought you started it. No,
2: General Hill Uh, started it. I think actually, to be completely honest, in the book it's "Everybody Fights," which I got caught saying a lot when I first took over, Mm. and nobody would correct me (laughs) because nobody likes correcting. Now sixes in the army, they just like, and then eventually a. my command sergeant major's like, sir, it's, it's everyone fights. <laughs> and then in the movie, the response is no one quits. So we added that when I was there because we were like, never we base f- the, always read the book. The, the movie is the movie's the not movie. as good, no. But the, but the book is. But the concept incredible. that again, General Hill came up with, I embraced, and I even took it further. Once we regionally aligned, that concept that like everybody has a role in the fight, like okay. it doesn't matter if you're a logistician, fires, engineer. You know, military intelligence, signal ear, like, one, everyone needs to understand the basics of war fighting if you're going to be an advisor. So that means, you know, everyone fights. Mm-hmm. I pushed it out further once we started engaging partners on the continent. It was like, you know, it's we're making sure that everyone can fight. Everyone that's on our left and right, nobody's a liability. It's a coalition if we're going to go into a fight as Americans with partners, and we want to know that they can handle their piece of that just as much as we can. You know, so globally everyone fights is the way we saw it, but I'm not sure if we need to—
0: <laughs> enact yeah. you know the, the mobile
2: com- infantry and if you don't serve you don't get a vote yeah you know, that that's, that's next level <laughs> starship trooper stuff this is a little off the topic. book is an, i think it is a good leadership book in really? terms it's of understanding
0: good. like from a, i mean yeah. that guy he's written some incredible books yeah besides that too but real quick i want to this is kind of off topic but here's you talked about the war college now like three times i think two or three times i just want to run this concept that here we go bobby and i have come up with and see what you think so we think we can save the military money Right, So check it out. Instead of the War College, we're going to create a card game. Right? And it's going to be called the War College, or we can call it Staff Arsonist, but the, the game is you flip over what, a card. What do
1: you call it, though, Chuck? Staff Arsonist? Staff Arsonist, right. You flip over a card,
0: and it's something the general said in a meeting. And you're in the game, you're an NCO or an officer on a general officer's staff. So once that card is flipped over, then it's your job to play your cards. And you can play cards like task a subordinate staff even though I'm not the S3 and have no tasking authority or make an Excel matrix that has a font so small I can't read it but it has a ton of colors on it, right? I like where your head's at. Yeah, and the point of the game is to create as much work as possible and freak out for everybody around you that has nothing to do with achieving the commander's intent, right? I think that that's a much cheaper way to achieve the same effects that we get out of the War College. <laughs> what do you think?
2: That's an interesting
0: take. <laughs> Is there like, do you
2: get to play different like roles, like role players? So if you're the NCO, you just play the card that says, great idea, sir. The men will love it. <laughs> yeah,
0: you can, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like you play the card, like yeah. say the exact same the thing the officer said, but take twice as the long The warrant to say officer it. doesn't say anything. <laughs> and then he shows coffee. up at
2: the end of the game to say what you just did was wrong. Yeah, And let me tell you why. And fact. what you guys should do is this.
0: And then he leaves again. Yeah. Or he waits till after <laughs> it failed. No, I, got, I, I t- knew t- that was a bad idea. <laughs> Let's hit all the stereotypes. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. One of the last things we want to hit on is the recruiting challenges, right? Yep. We're we're trying to get from the same pool, and we're having a recruiting crisis anyway. So what does that look like?
2: It looks very much the same, and it's compounded by the fact that unlike, let's say, an SF battalion or group, outside of your 18 series folks, the Army assigns all those people. So all your support MOSs, low-density folks. Mm -hmm. Here's my shortages, U.S. Army. I need more 92 Yankees. SFAB... That 92 Yankee is a volunteer, so you got to recruit your 92 Yankees. There's not a single MOS in the SFAB that isn't a second-time volunteer recruit, right? So similar, maybe more towards, like, the Ranger Regiment when they look
0: at but their you're not taking guys right off the street into the SFAB, right? No,
2: no, no, no. Because, again, in order to get somebody with the experience level, mm-hmm. whether it's PME or just real world, I've done this as an infantryman, artilleryman, what have you, MOS, they're picking from those branch qualified folks, right? The most junior person is like an E5, more than likely an E5 promotable in the SFAB. Everybody's done their job at least once, you know? There's no, no specialists, no privates, all NCOs and officers. And again, the challenge we have is very. it's very much compounded by the Army's marketplace for officers now. And when they start doing that with NCOs, it's going to get even because you have to compete for the interest of those individuals to select you just as much as you want to select them as a volunteer. You have similar challenges with leadership that a lot of these folks work for. It's a new thing, right? Bobby talked about new organizations and people not knowing exactly what they do or what it does for them. So when you have a NCO or officer going to their mentors and you pick the division and saying, hey, I think I'm gonna go SFAB. There's a lot of, you know, well, that's not what I did because they couldn't have done that because it didn't exist. I don't really know what that's gonna do for your career. The Army has taken back some of the incentives that General Milley put in place in terms of promotion or selection for other types of jobs, like command selection. You, You don't get a bump anymore because you decided to volunteer to be an advisor. So you're working against all that kind of stuff. And the pool is getting smaller, right? We're not getting as many people into the Army. So it's a challenge. I
0: imagine those units aren't going to want to lose their people either, so they're probably fighting against it. Yeah, because they're, no, they're talent, right?
2: It's a constant fight, right? So, and, and then you've got to you know, then match it up to that readiness cycle that we developed for ourselves to make sure that you're getting them in at the right time so you're not getting people you know, right before deployment because, again, making sure they're certified and validated is something that you know, we'd very much want to do, especially when you're sending a small team to a country that's not a permissive environment, you know, even though things might seem well today, could be bad tomorrow. So you gotta select the right folks that are prepared to do the right things and train them to do so. So we had the same, same recruiting challenges. Again, it's a little bit different in terms of like the message, because again, it's like, hey, you're not leaving the infantry, you're not leaving the engineers, you're not leaving the field artillery, you're getting an opportunity to do something a little bit different, a lot more opportunity to actually explore what mission command looks like, a lot more responsibility, and then you're taking that experience right back to the Army, hopefully at the next level. So, you know, ideally the majors I had, you know, they were getting that experience, we were getting them ready, and ideally they were going to, you know, compete well at CCAP, and they would all go back to be tactical battalion commanders, you know, across the Army. And that's what you're hoping to happen at, at Echelon. But exactly the same number of challenges in terms of where we were going. Our, our numbers were doing, you know, we, I started out with all those first-generation folks. They filled it to 100% to get those first deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, and, you know, we're down to like 90% when I left Phil. And a lot of those maybe weren't the same, you know, we were making exceptions in terms of MOS. We were getting creative, you know, the civil affairs regiment told me quit taking captains to be my <laughs> team leaders, you know, cause I was only authorized three civil affairs officers in the brigade and it wasn't as company commanders and team leaders, but we were, we were getting creative to make mission, you know, which is good if you're talking, you know, competition, again, you're air accepting risk. Now that you got a civil affairs captain who may be advising a battalion in war and infantry or an armored battalion so i think it's it's going to be a challenge they're going to have to look at going forward we'll see where where, where that ends up for them just like it does with us i think it's going to be with potentially units that aren't, aren't fully manned and you're going to just going to have less in terms of a force package going out to the COCOMs to support them
0: yeah oddly enough for i think for uh, one of our recruiting problems is we have a lot of in-service people that come to selection. The selection rate right now for in-service people just is not very high for whatever reason. I mean, it's astronomically higher for people coming right off the streets, which I find interesting because selections. I don't. I don't believe selections any harder than we went went through looking at it. So, I don't know what your thoughts on that.
2: For us, or for just for
0: in general for special forces.
2: I mean, one of the challenges I think we have for in-service recruiting was the number of other opportunities that exist. So, again, I represent coming out of second SFAB. one of those other opportunities where folks were like, well, I could do something really similar Mm -hmm. and I don't have to go full Monty, right? Like I'm not going to change my MOS and go over to be a Green Beret for the rest of my life. So those people that might be on the fence, you might lose those folks to maybe the SFABS. You know, I think we're not far enough out of the previous conflict that we've had that you're going to start seeing people that see arsoff as an opportunity outside of the routine this is what we do in the conventional army mm-hmm. you know the, the guys like me that were looking for something a little bit different looking for a deployment you know again in 99 the army wasn't going anywhere but a ctc yeah. i had done two ctc rotations as a field artillery guy you know and sitting every day talking to a 10th group guy about all these cool things the green berets were doing in europe or other mm-hmm. places in the world as was as i was like man there's no yeah. place else in the army you can do that no, i think it
0: goes back to what you said earlier right like guys weren't used to being able to do whatever they want to as a green beret you're the master of your own universe now right you walk in your team room has more weapons than a company arms room in the infantry like it just does you get more sniper rifles and you have people you have mortars and you get that true hey you tell me what you want to do right it's like that now you're the master of your own universe
2: no absolutely so. And I think, I think those opportunities, if we play it right, you know, you open that up to those in-service recruits that didn't see us as an opportunity before. I mean, people were deploying. People were going to Afghanistan, Iraq. They were getting their combat patches, mm-hmm. you know. They were getting to work with Green Berets without, without having to go to assessment and selection. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we hit the lottery. We are the security force for this, you know, yeah. FOB for this, which means we are going to be going out on target. They with would go ODA. with us every time, right, yeah. yeah. I already called Chuck. It's the, you know, it's the same guy we had last time. Hopefully he doesn't get shot as early as he did last time in the rotation. You know, They probably have those kind of conversations. Yeah. But, you know, that stuff's not happening anymore. So again, there's going to be an opportunity there. I don't think having gone to the Q course along our selection, you know, very many moons ago, 22 plus years ago, the three here 10 years ago at Swick and now the chief of staff, you know, there's a lot more structure, data and understanding of why all these great ideas over multiple decades made assessment and selection, mm-hmm. but assessment and selection is pretty much the, same, the same kind concept, of things, right? right. So I, I, I think, you know, some of it's opportunity. I think some of it is, you know, you just got to figure out what motivates people to get ready for selection. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different for each generation in terms of how people see themselves and what they got to do to get ready. We saw it. I mean, the S fabs were seeing it as they played with their assessment and selection. Mm-hmm. So you get, you know, they started something, it was going, COVID hit, we went to like a paper board, phone interviews, teams interviews, you know, may or may not have like hired the exact person we thought we were hiring on paper. (laughs) And since they've gone to, hey, back to, I think it's five days, four or five days down at Benning, you do an, an ANS, a quick one, you know, that has some physical, some mental challenges in there, a lot of the same like psychological testing to see if the person has the aptitude to do that kind of work. The selection rate was starting to come down because there was some more rigor and it was there, you know. So I don't know if it speaks to who we have in the Army or not. I think it's just it's part of the natural kind of wave theory of how things work out.
1: So what about, like, on the collaboration part? You know, there's a lot of leaders, you know, yourself included, who, you know, as Special Forces officers for a long period of time, have gone into the SFAB and spent some quality time there. What would your advice be to other leaders in a Special Forces regiment who are also looking at, you know, getting their feet wet in the SFABS and taking some of their experiences, their uh, their leadership abilities, and you know, like language and cultural training, and, and bringing that to the SFABS? What would be your advice to those guys?
2: No, I would definitely encourage anybody that wants to do it. Right, if if it works out, timeline for them. I always felt like we should have opened up the door a little bit more, at least to battalion command sergeant majors, to be like, for a second time to come into an SFAB. The challenge is very small pool, and we got a lot of work for those type of guys in the RSOF community, in SOCOM, Um, so giving them up for another two to three years to go work in an SFAB, I I don't think was necessarily in the cards right now. And then working that timeline out for our NCOs uh, down the line, it gets even tighter, because There's other expectations, whether it's a SWCC opportunity, as General Roberson says, or the like. I felt like, man, if I could only get a couple team sergeants or senior E-7s over here as company first sergeants, it would inject a small unit mentality when it comes to readiness and understanding what you do when you get all of these things and true control over your own destiny on a day-to-day basis. Much like my experience as a battalion commander, I had teams that were better than others, you had individuals that would understand and you had team sergeants who were writing their own SOPs and expectations for their teams and building it off army doctrine and understanding what you had to do to get the right resources to get the ranges you wanted to go out and do things with your team or go find opportunities to train another force. And then you had teams that were just going to sit there and wait till the company commander or the battalion commander or the brigade commander told them or shamed them into doing work. right? There are Shame special forces teams that, are, <laughs> that have done that in the past. I, yeah. I can attest to that. But, again, I think there is opportunities. With the officers, it's primarily with the O4s. I think with the population of captains we have right now, I think we're pretty healthy. There may even be the opportunity that if you're young enough and you got through your team time, I don't know. Is there an opportunity to go over there and command another team hmm. on an SFAB? Because of your timeline and coming in so late, you're probably going to promote to major, and someone's going to tell you don't do that because then you're going to be the junior major in the major pool, and those are all army guys that are trying to become battalion commanders. You know, all real problems when it comes to understanding your own career management. But those majors that are coming out of company command, that you know, I had one that that I'd worked with in third battalion that's there now. Unfortunately, I wasn't there when he's he's there in second SFAB. But again. Didn't get to do the kind of deployments and things he thought he was going to get to do as an SF company commander. Saw the opportunity that hey, those guys are deploying over there. I think I'm going to go do that for a little while. Yeah. So it does provide you that second opportunity to maybe get out the door and do some things. And then for the for the battalion commanders, and I would even say, you know, I tried to you know convince some a couple of friends of mine that were group commanders. You know, it's a grind. The 06 command is a grind. But I was like, hey, there's an opportunity. If you want to continue to do this, like you guys would just crush this in Excel. So throw your name in the hat because they're looking for second time folks. There's uh, right now five SF battalion commanders across the the five brigades. Oh wow! Yeah, you know, That are currently in command. So there's definitely still hiring at those levels. I think a couple guys competed for the the couple slots at brigade. So there's opportunities, and again, I think we bring the type of experience when it comes to problem solving, when it comes to the understanding of mission command, the expectation that, you know, you can put a captain in the country by himself with the right resources and training and expect him to do amazing things on behalf of the nation. You don't need a brigade commander. You don't need a division commander. You don't need those folks watching that person. We can trust those captains to do that work, right? And you have those opportunities to affect that as an SF guy
1: going into a— SFAB. Uh, well said. Very well said, sir. I like that.
0: And this this whole thing kind of sounds like an SFAB recruiting commercial. If it's not, we just want to explain like the SFAB. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure Colonel Sullivan won't admit this, but, you know, word on the street is when he was mm-hmm. over there in second SFAB, he did have to take testosterone supplements to make sure that he was still... <laughs> <laughs>
1: So he was more
0: S-fabulous? <laughs> more S-fabulous. Look at his hair. like He keeps getting older, and his hair keeps getting greater. It's weird. <laughs> I don't understand it. I think there's some magical stuff going on there that he didn't explain, but he still looks like a movie star. right? I mean, look, it looks like there's a fan blowing right now. Like he's, <laughs> like he's riding a Harley. Right here in the Swiss city. I this it, was, it, was it being a fun. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> so. I took some considerable <laughs> time to
2: fix my hair for you guys. Um, <laughs> I would have brought my brown beret award for two years oh man damn you guys didn't ask me that question i know know your operational environment
0: i do want to close out with one thing okay so this is off topic but i promised some people i would bring it up because i think that it needs to be brought up (laughs) like we talk about the triad cyber special operations and space right and i've yet to hear somebody define it in concise precise verbiage of what they want that measure of effectiveness to look like what do you got on that <laughs> can you define it for me no You're, and if you can can't say no and, and I can't I, I mean we owe it to to the ground level people like because every time a general officer says this they, they make people spin and work but we need to make sure we're doing the right thing and then doing that thing properly so what's the measure of effectiveness w- what is it that we're trying to achieve at the tactical level specifically because we keep saying it you're looking at that's me. A good
2: question. <laughs> I, that's a really good question. Perhaps we need a Chuck, dedicated I appreci- episode. I appreciate of this. that question. <laughs> I, that's all the things you're supposed to say while you're thinking, right? <laughs> no, I think I, I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is, you know, being at a schoolhouse. Again, you're a fan of like encouraging people to read doctrine. I may have been in a meeting today where you you held a piece up and said, maybe we should start with this. I don't think that with space and cyber, cyber having been around longer. Mm-hmm around long enough that there is some semblance of what they think they're supposed to do and why they exist. Right. Mm-hmm. But not enough people have read those materials to then go, Oh, okay. That's what they're saying they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what do we think we are supposed to do with that? You know, it's one of those things where if it's doesn't fit neatly into, you know, when someone says large scale combat operations, mm-hmm. we like to then lump all those things together, or maybe they, they attract each other. So mm-hmm they can figure out for themselves like how we can better help everybody else. I think you have a a lot of senior leaders that come from all three of those communities that have been working across all three of those communities that see it at their level. Probably staff guys like me aren't listening close enough to then articulate that Whoa. down and in. I
0: talked to all the guys down at the bottom, everybody's asking the same question like, what is it? Define it for us because it's kind of like when you say, I want you to go conduct special operations. And then you're like, okay. This is this what you want? Like, why did you why did you do that? It's not what I wanted. Like, well, you, what? It's I, think it's, I think we can get into that very quickly if we aren't careful. Because like, uh, you know, every time somebody says something up higher, you're creating a lot of work. Let's make sure it's going towards the right direction, though. Right?
2: I feel like you're selling your card game again.
0: Kind of. But I know that, you know. <laughs> no, I agree. Commanders do listen to this. But let's, let's be a little more precise. I think there's precise. an opportunity,
2: right? And yeah. there's, there's language words mean things, mm-hmm. right? To equate it back to like the previous subject. I mean, oftentimes I was asked, because I was touted as, he's the advisory expert. He's been doing it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I'd have battalion command sergeant majors come up to me and go, okay, we're, we're about to do the trap or we're about to do a Valix. What is, what's the task condition standard look like for advising?
0: hmm yeah.
2: Like I understand like what it looks like you know, for a platoon live fire. I understand all the things that are supposed to happen well, what's a 12 person advisory team like how do I measure yeah. that effectiveness at the point of what they're doing in Kenya or Senegal like and then how do I prepare them then to be successful
0: but you it obviously was, created something so for right? me
2: it, it was more of like this intuitive well that's what I've been doing for 20 years like yeah. I don't understand what you're asking me like just
1: mm-hmm. just, just mm-hmm. do this and you already know what right looks like You've but in your head it. right
0: but they didn't know
2: it But but part of it then was like well there's books for that like Let's go read my doctrine Mm -hmm. if we're supposed to be the experts. You know, a lot of people ask, like, hey, we're doing this in our, in the advisory course. Like, what do you guys do in the Q course to produce advisors? You know, and when you start thinking about what do we actually teach a block of instruction to Green Berets on how to advise, like what that part is, or we focus on creating new MOSs. And then once they get to the team, it's OJT working through team sergeants who have decades of experience and they tell the captain, just sit in the corner for a while, figure out what we do, and then figure out how to enable us to do that better, Captain. You know? So it's it wasn't like I sat down in the eighteen Alpha course. I would say the Alpha course does touch on that a little bit when it talks, you know, some of the FID and UW blocks of instruction. You know, occasionally you'll get a guy who'll bring in like, hey we need to talk brief lab or we need to figure out how to communicate better, not just culturally or language-wise but that's a piece of it too. Or we need to teach this class on influence. So that that became a thing where everyone's like, "Okay, it's we need to go to West Point to the negotiations course negotiations. and get every advisor into the negotiations course because that's what advising is. It's negotiations." Well, is it? Is it just negotiations? So, I think we're still trying to work our way through it, you know, coming back around to the triad. Like I think in some folks' head it's like you got the things that are on the very edge of where really bad things are gonna happen mm-hmm. at all times. It's in a, you know, if you talk multi-domain operations, you got the special operators who 100% live and should understand the human domain, like people, mm-hmm. influence, yep. like how Most they powerful think- powerful influence, right? How they think and how I can problem solve to get them the way I think, or get them to think this way to help solve this problem. Like throw a Green Beret at it, that's what they'll do for you. You know, on the other edge of that, attached to it now is this electronic atmosphere that you know cyber touches on. Some of it's, I don't want them to see my stuff. It's just basic like counter-mobility and the, the cyber sphere of they can't see me, but I want to be able to see them. I need to get in there. Similar kind of concepts of what's going on. How do I influence that? But it's out there seeing and doing all these things. How does that connect to those people that are also out there on the edge? And then I think the space piece of it is the fact that there is a place that we can leverage technology then to bring those things together, mm-hmm. if we do it effectively.
0: I just think we need to define Sorry. it for the guys or the people on the ground, at least. Right? Like, what does that mean? Like, this that like, for me, like, I've done my cyber awareness training, so in my head. I'm a cyber-enabled person. And if my whole detachment is you're done there, we are a cyber-enabled ODA, right? But it comes like, hey, like... So, hey, so like, what
2: you're saying is more online training would help us get boom, after... Boom, that's, that's what you got to do. I think that's the, the key. understanding of the triad. But like certain things like breaking into level.
0: CCTVs or Bluetooth stuff, I mean, mean I it's I not cyber. Have,
2: I'm the chief of staff at SWIG. Could, you could make that happen, right? I could right? make more cyber-awareness training happen. I mean, got,
0: I've got the, the regulations here. I find we the a so.
2: focus group of one maybe you and we just have you do different online training (laughs) until we figure figure it
0: out out. we do it but seriously yeah i'm a big fan i think like all (laughs) the things we just discussed it's very ambiguous right like let's just nail it down let's define like what are we talking about and then if you if somebody up tired knows what they're talking about i promise you nobody at the tactical level knows what you're talking about because I get asked all the time and i don't have an answer for anybody
1: i'm gonna say it also comes down to messaging right we hear about this, I know Colonel Sullivan mentioned, you know, the yes fabs are being unveiled, but like what's the purpose behind them? How do they compare differently? What is it we're going to ask them to do? Not like the umbrella term that we used to see in mission statements. Ask them. We don't ask. Ask people. them to do. It was like, hey, conduct special operations. It's like, okay, like well, all right, well that's that's real specific and time and place yeah. and location, right? Conduct special operations.
0: Mm-hmm. Which works sometimes, like sometimes you have the ambiguity but sometimes you don't, like be precise, tell me what it is you want and I'll conquer the world. But if you leave it up in the air, it's like, okay, to me, it's like a, it's just an out for people. It's kind of like we talked about building the plane. But I
2: think if you look at experience driving, decision-making, right? 20 years ago, the idea of a remotely flown plane informing where we were gonna put around on target, how we would get that information and then what we would do after Mm -hmm. was alien to a lot of people. But they gave a whole bunch of new capabilities to a bunch of special operations guys and mm-hmm. said, hey, can you do anything with these new toys? Figure it out and figure out how you can effectively do bad things to bad people with this stuff. Yeah. I can't believe I just used a second. Third, <laughs>
0: you did. You used Strike
2: that in the record, please. <laughs> you know, what I'm getting at is, I mean, I think that's part of it. Chuck. You have a special operations culture led by a bunch of leaders that understand that we can problem solve. Mm-hmm. And folks don't know exactly the capabilities that space and cyber could bring to the fight. So
0: It's funny that you say like we'll some teams that right now. We'll that... figure that
2: out for you, and we'll start at the team level, right, bottom up.
0: Like, just... I don't know what that looks
2: like at the tactical level. Give them a cyber guy. Give them, like, a space guy. I don't even know what those guys are. And then they'll tell us if this was a good idea or not.
0: But there's some teams in third group right now that have a lot of those answers, but there's no connection between them and higher. And they're like, hey, they're bought in. They're like, we we think we've skinned the cat on this, but nobody's listening. It's kind of weird, but exactly what you're saying. Give it to some people on the ground.
2: I'm sure they'll be listening now.
0: Have them figure it out. Yeah, go down and talk to them. <laughs> but I think you need to define it. Like, what is it? Cause it's, it's just pissing everybody else off. And then it gives us stuff to talk about and make fun of on the side. Sweet. All right. You get the outro, Bobby.
1: Yeah. Carl Sullivan, truly appreciate the time today. This has been fantastic. Allowing us to have a better glimpse inside the Security Force Assistance Brigades, but kind of leveraging your experience coming as a Special Forces individual and leader, going over to Security Force Assistance Brigade, and then having you come back over and uh, contributing back to the Special Warfare Center and School as our Chief of Staff. Really appreciate the time today in Pineland Underground.
2: Thank you, gents. really appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Outstanding.
1: Thanks for joining us today in Pineland Underground, the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and Schools official podcast.
0: Please tune in to our next episode. We release episodes every two weeks.
1: You can reach us at PinelandUnderground at gmail.com. Check it out.